Welcome, welcome, welcome to Building the Black Educator Pipeline podcast. You have come to the place where we talk to real people in the real struggle doing the real work. I am your host, Shana Terrell, educator activist dedicated to the lifelong struggle of freedom and liberation for my people. Today, we are joined by Elizabeth Todd Breedland, the author of A Political Education, Black Politics and Education Reform in Chicago Since 1960s, and she's also Associate Professor at, of History and Affiliate Faculty in the Black Studies Department at the University of Illinois, Chicago. So we are excited. She'll be joining us today to talk about politics and education. I mean, just all things Black education. So we are super, super excited to have you. How are you doing, Elizabeth? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. Um, it's a pleasure to be here with you today. I'm excited to talk. We are excited to hear you talk. Okay, we are excited to hear your voice. So I love to start out with just asking my guests to tell us a little bit about yourself. What should the people know? Who's Elizabeth? Huh? Share with us. Past, present. Who are you? So I I was born in Washington D.C. Um, I was raised in Silver Spring, Maryland. I have a lot of family in the Baltimore area. Um, my father's from Baltimore. Uh, I went to college in Philadelphia. I went to the University of Pennsylvania. Then I left there in 2004, and I have lived in Chicago ever since. So um, I moved to Chicago initially for graduate school, and then I stayed. During that time, I worked in a lot, like, lot of different sort of um, enrichment programs related to young people. So, um, so I was a summer college counselor. I worked in after-school programs while I was in school. Um, I also was a part-time social studies instructor and then high school college counselor um, at a high school for a few years and mm -hmm. then went into my academic journey. So I, uh, my first job was at a university called Governor State University, which is a regional state university in the South suburbs of Chicago. And now I've been a professor at the University of Illinois, Chicago for 11 years. Uh, I got two kids of my own who attend public schools. Um, and yeah, I guess, I guess I'm a Chicagoan now, you know, I, I, I teach about the great migration. I'm a migrant. So <laughs> this is home. I love that. Okay. So then, I mean, what I didn't expect, right. You're in academia and I talked a lot about your experiences, um, getting into education. Mm. Can you please share your journey? What inspired you to want to get yeah. into education and become an educator? That's a good question. You know, I think in some ways, I can take both my journey as an educator and the things that I ended up researching back to my own educational experience. So I mentioned I was born in Washington, D.C., in a Black community in D.C., but my, my parents drove me to go to a different school, not my neighborhood school. Okay. I think they felt like that was, you know, to give me a, a better educational experience. Ultimately, we ended up moving out of the city. I would say, and I think this is interesting, I, this would be like in the late 80s, not so much out of crime, which was certainly a thing in my neighborhood, right? But because of searching for um, educational opportunity. So we moved to Silver Spring, Maryland when I was in elementary school. Um, and I went to school there in very like both racially and socioeconomically diverse schools, um, but still, you know, tracking, right? So I was in mm -hmm. a large, high school, large public high school and often one of the only... Um, Black students in magnet courses or honors classes and that type of experience. And it's one of those things that when you're going through it as a child, you know something's not right about this, right? Like, mm. why, why is this what my, I'm in a, a school that is a majority minority school, but yet in my classes, you know, as a high school student, that's not what I'm seeing. Um, and so I think that that inequity, maybe as I didn't necessarily have a, a clear language for it at that time. Um, but as I continued, I went to college and then I found myself drawn to working in education spaces. So I mentioned I went to school in Philly. Um, I was, you know, working in after, like volunteering at schools. In fact, you're in Philadelphia, I'll speak to this. One of the schools I volunteered at for a period of time um, was University City High School, which, as you know, no yes. longer exists, you right? replaced by a parking lot, which is wild to me, um, but I think speaks to some of the things I ended up studying as, you know, as a graduate student and then a professor. Um, so living through at a very different sort of, you know, marginal phase, some of those changes in school reform, um, but knowing that I liked working with young people, I liked teaching, there were things about that that just felt right to me. Um, and so in going to graduate school, again, I found myself, even while I'm in school in a traditional history department, I was always, I've always been interested in Black history not so much, honestly, 
from my school-based experience, but from like home. Like I remember mm-hmm. me and my father would watch um, documentaries all the time. Like we were really into that. And, you know, just like t- telling stories about black history was something I was always interested in. And so then to have the opportunity to really pursue that as, um, you know, a profession uh, was something that one, I want to stress was, was not something when I went to college, even though you see professors in front of you every day, it wasn't something that I thought like, oh, I can do that. Like, I don't know, that didn't occur to me. Um, until my junior year, I think it was, when I, I ended up in this pipeline program to sort of diversify the professoriate, which at the time was called the Mellon Minority Undergraduate Fellowship. Now it's called the Mellon Mays, I think, Undergraduate Fellowship Program. But they were like, okay, you can uh, you get a free computer. We're going to pay you to do research. <laughs> they serve pizza at the information meeting, and I was in. So, not, not pizza and a free computer. No. <laughs> no but ever since then, you know, it kind of put me on this trajectory to seeing teaching in college as something that was was available and a possibility for me um, and having that support of that network um, all the way, honestly, since then and to this day. Uh, has been something that's continued to to be really important to me and and supported me in this professional journey. Um, So that's, yeah, I guess that's kind of how I got, got where I am today. Um, A kind of mix of the personal and the the educational. Yeah. Super interesting point about the pipeline. Um, And the reason why I don't want to graze over that is because again, you had no thoughts, no exposure to even being um, in a, a professor in academia, but this recruitment to you, this exposure to you of like, hey, try this out. This pipeline program is what gave you the opportunity. Absolutely. And all the things that came with that, right? So there's an element of financial support. There's an element of mentorship. So I was connected with, well, first of all, the the people that ran it were Black people in academia. Um, Mm -hmm. So shout out to Val, who's the vice provost at the University of Pennsylvania still, and Dr. Herman Beavers, who was a Black um, English professor who mentored me in that program, and Dr. Barbara Savage, who was a Black woman professor who I got to work with and be her research assistant, and then encouraged me actually as an undergraduate to take a graduate course, right? Which was very intimidating, but she was like, you got this. And so I think all, to your point, all of those elements, I never would have considered, you know, I think I felt like, so growing up, my parents, born in the DC area, worked in government or government related agencies. Mm-hmm. And I was, you know, that's the path to the middle That's class. Right? Good government yeah. job. So I was like, I'm gonna get a good government job, which I guess <laughs> I still have, right? I'm a state employee. Yes. Um, so get myself a good government job um, or maybe like some nonprofit kind of work. Like those were the kind of things I thought were maybe something I might do. Law school, but I was like, nah, I'm not, uh, that, that's not how I think it will enroll. But I think those were the things I sort of saw as future trajectories and it didn't occur to me you know, but once I got on that path, those folks kept me on it. Yes. And I love the things that you named, uh, the financial barriers and the mentorship. You know, folks know a lot of work that we're doing here at the center to build the pipeline, but build them early with some of those same parameters, making sure folks are connected to people. Um, folks are being mentored by folks, um, and definitely alleviate the financial barriers. Um, most of the jobs, whether it's to get into academia or teaching or K-12 come with financial barriers, whether that be paying for college, paying for your certification, coming out of school in debt, and then getting a job that's, you know, maybe 50000 starting. Not getting paid for student teaching. Not getting paid for student teaching. None of that. None of that. When they working, right? <laughs> so Absolutely. None and of that. Recording. I think that was a, another really important part is that I wasn't going through it alone. I had a cohort of folks around me who also were at least considering this, you know, and so we kind of were going through that that journey together. And then at every stage, so they did that when I was an undergraduate, but then there was a whole nother set of sort of supports when I was a graduate student. And then a whole nother subset of supports when I was an early career faculty member. So that also that idea that it's not just getting in, but how, like what helps you to stay? Well, people always underestimate this idea of community um, and human capital and how important it is to have people be connected to support each other, to get through stuff, which again, this opens up a whole new, another can of worms when we talk about black educators yeah. um, and folks are in districts and they're the only, yes. um, or you're a new teacher and you come in and it's not many faces or people who look like you. So you don't necessarily have the opportunity to find community or to get mentored uh, by, you know, 
black veteran teachers mm-hmm. or to be able to sit down at a table and talk to people who are going through the same exact things that you're going through or that you're facing um, or to make cultural connections with. So Absolutely. excellent, excellent points. And again, about how all throughout the pipeline, those are all important things for people to have to experience to be able to persevere through and get through the pipeline mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. sure, without a doubt. Yeah. But the story of your parents are the story of, of many Many folks um, trying to find quality education for their children and moving from, you know, space to place to try to be able to develop that for kids. And you're right. When you think about crime, like crime happens everywhere. Like people have this notion about like only black people commit crimes, right? (laughs) I mean, crimes may be committed as a disproportionate rate due to poverty um, that, that black communities live in, but crime happens everywhere. So yeah, we may put up a little crime, honey, as long as my, my, my kid who's not involved in the crime, um, it's getting a quality education. Um, and a lot of times that is at the root of what black parents want. Quality education, because, you know, in this country, quality education is supposed to lead to a quality life, right? A better quality of life. So definitely your, your parents have the same story that many, many parents, black mm-hmm. parents for sure, have mm-hmm. been experiencing. Yeah. Um, but you've done a lot of research also. Like you've had personal experience, but you've done so much research on this. Uh, on these subjects yeah I would love a little bit to get into talking about what that really means because on the surface we're talking about parents and parents just looking for a quality education for their for their kids mm-hmm. but underneath that there's some systematic um there's some political undertones that that really feed that and I think a lot of times ordinary ser- citizens we're just out here trying to survive right yeah. yeah um but there are these larger masses that are pulling the strings and building the barriers uh, for people to have a better quality of life um so when you think about politics and education how closely would you say those those two are related and why <laughs> very <laughs> so you know you said that like i mean and i'll go back like the act of teaching black children to read was illegal in this country mhm so if that that is essentially political and people so, tend to forget that right like they really do yeah and so and it's not just teaching our history which still remains is now illegal again in some places right but the actual fact of literacy for black people was illegal in this country mm-hmm. um, and was punishable by law so that is a political act so in fact black education in particular i think has always been a political act and continues to be a political act. Um, so I think in many ways that they're inseparable. Um, mm. And, you know, I, you mentioned earlier, my book is called A Political Education, and that, that plays a couple different directions, right? But if it's, can I talk a little bit about that, if that's okay? Please get into the book. I think that, um, you know, one of the things you said is right, right? That Black people have always been interested in having their children and, and adults as well educated and you see that from, again, we talked about during the time of enslavement, where you have clandestine groups of people getting together to learn how to read, even though it could be punishable, mm-hmm. maimed or killed even, right? Um, and then at the time of freedom, uh, when emancipation comes in into the Reconstruction period, one of the very first things that Black people do in the South is start to build schools. And so when you have white missionaries and the Freedmen's Bureau coming down to the South with the expectation of creating schools, they already existed because that was one of the first things that black communities organized to do. And one of, you know, the sort of, uh, you know, grand mentors in the field of black education, a scholar named Jim Anderson, um, who recently retired, writes about this extensively, right, that this idea has endured that black people don't care about education. Mm-hmm. And that really couldn't be further from this truth. And the historical record is clear on that across historical periods. For sure. So, you know, that's sort of the late 19th into the early 20th century period. My story that I write about picks up at the mid 20th century. Um, when you see, you know, deeply segregated schools, deeply inequitable schools across the country. And I think that's one of the points is that I think sometimes when we think about segregation, we think about it as something in the South, that something different and better is happening in the North. And that's hmm. sort of the West or the Midwest. And that's just not the case. Um, it was different, but not better. And I think one of the things I try to break down is this distinction between um, sometimes the ideas people have about like, uh, de facto segregation, segregation by custom, and de jure segregation, segregation by law. 
And the, the idea being that like, there's something like segregation by custom or um, not by law outside of the South and it's by law during the Jim Crow era in the South. But in places like Chicago, you can use residential segregation as an example. This was codified. This was codified in restrictive covenants that people were signing um, as a condition of lease or sale that said in their con you know, in the contract for the lease or sale, you may not rent or sell to black people. Mm. That's a legally binding document. That is segregation by law, right? Yes. And so we see the same thing happening in education where um, yes, you know, the Chicago public schools for a very long time in the mid 20th century, they took a colorblind approach to this. And they said, well, we actually don't even keep racial statistics. And since we don't keep racial statistics, there's no way that we could be, um, you know, discriminatory against black people. But the facts on the ground said otherwise. So mm -hmm. you have black students uh, coming up from the great migration, um, you know, the black community has expanded, schools are overcrowded, they're under-resourced by the mid 19th or by the 1960s, Black students are being um, funded at two thirds the degree that white students are being funded. Um, you have students attending school on double and triple shifts, meaning these schools are so overcrowded that they send a group of black students to school for four hours in the morning, they go home, and then another group come in in the afternoon. And it's just blatantly, you know, separate and unequal education. And so what I look at are the different approaches that black people took to addressing this issue. And one of the main contentions I have is that there's never been a monolithic Black politics. There have always been multiple Black politics. And yes. so have some people during this time saying, you know, we're going to pursue the fight for desegregation. Um, and I will say desegregation wasn't just about Black children and white children sitting next to each other, but really about the ability um, to have access to state resources that are being given to white students that are being denied to Black students. Absolutely. Um, who begin to argue for community control of schools. Mm -hmm. And I would say that's particularly, and this is why history to me matters, when this is happening matters. Uh, in the mid-1960s, we have the passage of massive um, new laws that are bringing new funds for public education, federal funds. So the Elementary and Secondary Education Act is passed in 1965. And Black communities, not just in Chicago, but across the country are saying, wait, this new money is coming for us and for our schools, but we have no control over how it's spent. We can't say that we think there should be black teachers in the schools, you know, administering um, education with these new funds. And so a demand for community control over schools. And then you have some folks who are like, I don't believe that black children will ever be able to be adequately educated in public schools. So we're going to create independent schools, African centered independent schools. And so I think with all of these different um, approaches, what unites them is this demand for quality education for Black children, even if they do have different ideas on the best way to get there. Um, and so that's kind of what the first half of the book sets up. And then the second half of the book is sort of like, well, what happened, right? All these community-generated ideas by Black people for Black education and what Black children should be receiving, what happened to that into the 80s and 90s and beyond? And I think one of the big things you see is this corporate reorganization of education where these folks who were central to these earlier periods, black parents and students and teachers who were protesting and organizing to, to you know, experience gains are undercut by a um, reorganization of education in a corporate model where those voices are not the loudest voices. And the loudest voices are now philanthropy and hedge fund managers and um, people who are privatizing education and sort of white technocrats and all of these other people who are now seen as the authority on what to do to improve Black education. Yes. And the most vulnerable populations are the one of, ones, of course, who get taken advantage of. Yes. Because um, you're talking about equal resources. They're like, well, these districts already have money. Since y'all need money, <laughs> you're going to take this money um, and these strategies are going to come with it. Yeah. Um. But to just talk about the book as a whole, I mean, I don't even know where to start, right? Because <laughs> it's so much um, talking about that first half and then getting into the second half. Um, but I would like to go back. Uh, we, you, you briefly touched on it, the perspective of Black politics. Um, and the reason why I say that, I so much appreciate you saying that it's not a monolith, um, that all Black people don't necessarily want the same things. Uh, 
or there may be one goal in mind, and that is like I want my kids to have a quality education that's attached to the the quality of life. But we don't want to get there the same way. That's right. And I think, and we all have different experiences. But I think there are so many times, right, um, that black voices are couched into one voice. Um, like we all want the same thing. Mm-hmm. And when you talk about politics, I just think that that becomes harmful um, because politicians do these one shot kind of, whether it's bill or lobbying for support, um, aimed at a certain type of black people, um, which is super interesting to me. And I think when it comes to education and we talk about the quality of education, everybody has something to say about education in poor black neighborhoods. Everybody has something to say. Something to say about it, but nobody wants to listen to the people who are experiencing it yeah. um, or give real resources or empower the people who are experiencing it to get out of those situations. But everybody has something to say. Everybody has a fix um, to throw at, throw at it. You know, we, we know people who have made a career off of exploiting black children and exploiting um, black families. Like that's that's just what they do. Um, but it has always been important for me to, like, as I've gotten older, um, and I've had the privilege to have options for my kids yeah. to go to what schools, you know, they would like or what school I want to pay for, to be quite honest, or move to a district where I want to live for better schooling for my child. Like I've been able to have those options. My parents weren't people who always had those options. But to look at the things that my parents may have wanted then and the things that I, I want now and I want to be empowered to have now is super interesting when you think about how people just think about Black people as a monolith. Um and the policies and things that gets pushed forward to address this kind of cookie cutter approach for black people. Um, and then I always think about black politics in comparison to, to white politics um, in a sense. And how are, how are non-black communities at times able to thrive and survive when they're not a monolith where all of their types of education get to exist in different spaces, but why doesn't that happen for black people? Mm. So super, super curious. Um, Cause I heard you mention independent schools and African centered schools as well. Yeah. You know, I think it's really interesting. And one of the things that you were talking about, it made me think of this transition that sometimes both his black uh, historians of black history and political scientists talk about, about sort of what was, what was gained and what was lost with um, the end of the Jim Crow era, the end of desegregation. And so there's something about the fact that when Black people, for a variety of ways that were shaped by discrimination, to be clear, were um, confined in you know particular neighborhoods and did not have the opportunity to move elsewhere, that those boundaries were created by what a historian Earl Lewis calls segregation, but also within that space created congregation. Right. So this tension between segregation as the thing that's being imposed by discriminatory policies and racism and congregation as the things that black people built within those spaces. But one of those parts of congregation is something people often talk about, this idea of linked fate. So for black people, what happens to one black person or group of black people has implications for all black people. Right. Yes. And that I think sometimes there is a thought that as you know, black people know me clearly as someone who grew up for the most of my childhood in a suburb would be part of this migration out of cities and into suburbs, um, out of, even within cities, out of, um, you know, sort of the traditional black community into other parts as Mm -hmm. a small, as a result of the civil rights movement, a small group of black upper middle-class and elites are able to distance themselves financially. um, Even if not within their own family, to be clear, you know, from other black folks, that that somehow um, deteriorated these ideas of linked fate. And so there is this tension um, where white people and whiteness has not been defined in the same way as for black people and blackness both by external forces and by our own inter- internal institutions, that both of those things are part of it, right? Yep. But I also think that there is a black radical political tradition that again comes as, as long as we've been here, African-American Black radical tradition, as long as we've been here, of fighting for the least amongst us. Mm-hmm. And what does that look like and what does that mean? And that in education in particular, beyond sort of race, there is this tension that becomes particularly amplified amongst with racial difference. Individual choices of individual parents mm-hmm. wanting to do what's right for their own children and the public good. 
And so when I think about the choices my own parents made, and frankly, that I've made at times as a parent, I'm thinking about the individual choices that I want to do for my child. Yes. As opposed to like, what is less than I'm considering at that moment, what is in the interest of the public good? Yes. So the problem though, is that who's actually paying attention to that public good part? Because parents are going to make decisions that they think are in, in the best interest of their children. Their child, yes. But if the government is not actually being attentive to what is in the best interest of the public good, public education as a public good, then those will always be separate and unequal choices. And it makes choice a fallacy because they, those choices are structured in wildly inequitable ways. Yes. I was going to say that <laughs> two completely, two totally um, different perspectives and ways. Definitely for sure. Now you talk about this notion. Ooh, I think this is like a hot button topic, but the, the privatization or the, the corporate reorganization more so sure. of public education. Um, because for what well, it probably started in the early nineties, um, the notion of the corporatizing of a public education and people truly supporting the idea that schools should be ran like a business um, because it makes it more efficient. Um, what effects, um, good or bad, do you think that had on the landscape for education, especially for Black families? Yeah, sure. And I'll take that history back even a little bit further in terms of thinking about um, the history of education as a public good versus the history of education as a private good. And for the majority of the history of this country, um, you know, education historians talk about the way that um, education has been understood as a public good. Now, people were excluded from being understood as the public. So when Black people are three-fifths of a person, right, they're not yeah, part of that. It's not even on the, yep. Right. But the idea of public education was that it was to be something that didn't just enrich or give advantage to individuals, but had benefits to the wider community. And sometimes those benefits were framed as benefits for democracy, um, benefits for civic participation, benefits for equality. Sometimes those benefits were framed as benefits for the workforce, right? Like we are going to invest in a public so that we have a, a workforce that can work in industry, right? There have been multiple ways, but the fundamental idea is that it was for a public good. This idea of education as a private good really doesn't emerge in a significant way until the mid 20th century and from two interestingly different sort of directions. So on the one hand, we talk about the civil rights movement, right? You have the desegregation of schools being required by Brown versus Board of Education. And in response to that, you see a massive white backlash to that. Mm -hmm. And in that white backlash, uh, one of the things that happens is that white parents start saying, well, I want to, I'm not going to, I'm not sending my kids to the desegregated school. So I want the, the government to give me those public dollars to go send them to a private school that because it's private can still be all white. And so those are some of the, the earliest calls that we see for the privatization of education and vouchers in particular. So that's coming out of a racist black backlash to civil rights gains. The other direction we see is from a sort of more um, libertarian um, perspective from sort of the origins of some of the, the ideals of modern conservatism, people like Milton Friedman, who are saying, yeah, I don't want the government involved in much at all. So take this money, you just give the money to the parents and they'll figure it out. Like you just give them money. So those two things really came together in the mid 20th century, this racist backlash to civil rights and these ideas of, you know, privatization coming out of a conservative um, idea of political economy. But to your point, they don't really find a stronghold and a strong home in our broader society until the 90s. And it's fascinating because in that moment, by the time you get to the 90s, it's a bi it's bipartisan support. This isn't a Republican and Democrat issue. Everyone is like, this is the way we're going to do things now. And I want to acknowledge that it comes out of a place of the fact that schools as they were, the status quo was not serving folks, right? Understood. Mm -hmm. But the, the remedy that was put in place also didn't serve people, right? And so this remedy of corporatizing, privatizing education, whether that's through vouchers, whether that's through the expansion of charter schools as 
um, often publicly funded um, forms of education that are privately managed. In some places, they're nonprofit. In some places, they're for-profit. Uh, and then just like broader sort of the um, privatization of education. Uh, uh, Philadelphia and other places are a good example, right? With like yes. corporation, right? Where mm -hmm. they come in and they're supposed to be, they're not quite charter schools, but they're going to now private, we're going to take public dollars to privately manage schools. Um, and so we see that happening, as you mentioned, across the country, uh, beginning in the, particularly in big cities um, during the 1990s, uh, two different results, right? And so I think instead, if we think about what, what a private, what a market-based logic in capitalism, there are winners and there are losers. So when we take a market-based approach to public education, some kids are going to win and others are going to lose. And systematically, the kids that lose are those who are already furthest from opportunity. Poor children, Black children, Latinx children, Indigenous children, mm -hmm. children whose families have the least social, economic, and other capital students with disabilities, English language learners, right? Those are the students who are least likely to either be able to navigate this new tiered system where you got to test into this school or lottery into this school. And then mm. what happens to the neighborhood school, right? And money is now being siphoned off from neighborhood schools to go to all these different other forms of education. And so there have been, like in capitalism, some winners, even uh, like a multicultural, right, set of winners within that system but there have also been a lot of folks who have lost. And so overall, what I think is interesting is now, you know, newer research is coming out that's really taking stock of what I would call sort of since the corporate re-education, corporate, uh, corporatizing of education period, but also the period since No Child Left Behind put in high stakes testing and high stakes accountability um, and, you know, in, uh, incentives to privatize and race to the top followed that same thing. Like, well, racing, we're, we're, we're in a market-based competition with each other. And the results haven't borne fruit, right? Overall, the research is really mixed, but generally it says that children who attend charter schools are not doing significantly better than their peers who attend neighborhood schools. Mm -hmm. um, we've done all these things and still we haven't got to the, the goal that was set out, but there have also been a lot of negative results, unintended or perhaps intended, frankly, consequences of this. And one of those is about black teachers. We've seen a decline in Black teachers over the course of that period of the corporate reorganization of public education, mm -hmm. in part because of, of policies like turnaround or reconstitution or whatever they want to call it, where you take a school, fire everyone there, and force them to reapply. And that disproportionately happens at Black schools mm -hmm. um, and schools serving low-income Black children in particular with predominantly Black staff. So that's yes. disproportionately impacting Black teachers. Same thing when you see um, charter schools, which particularly in their early days, and even to some extent still now, do not hire as many Black teachers as other schools, tend to hire younger, whiter teaching staffs, um, non-unionized teaching staff, so less benefits, less, you know, um, wage, lower wages, hard yes. work. You know, and I want to be clear, people working in education, wherever you are, they're working hard. Charter school teachers are working hard, often for less pay and for longer hours, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so we see that decline in the teaching force connected to these policies, school closings in places like Chicago, where in 2013, we experienced the largest mass closure of public schools in modern American history. It's wild. Disproportionately, those schools were black, had black students and black teachers. 70% of the schools that were closed had a majority black staff and a majority black teaching um, Wild. Sorry, black staff and black students, right? So these are not the impacts of these policies and approaches have not been neutral in the way that they have impacted our communities and our teachers um, and our communities. And it's crazy because it's so complex. Like there's so many things when you really struggle to like wrap your head around how does all of this happen? Um, and then when you look up, black people are already victims of the consequences of these policies or these actions that happen and it's happening from so many different targets reasons um it's just it's wild to think about so when you think about something like that happening to chicago in chicago you like how did that happen the other thing i try to think about is like you know i've had my experience and my experience only um so i try not to color too many of my opinions based on my own personal experiences 
but I can't help but you know, listen to the facts and I, I listen to the history and I listen to the research and the data to say like, this stuff doesn't happen to white people um, and, and masses, massive impacts in numbers. There would never be a time where there would be a predominantly white space and they would go in and close those schools. There would never be a time in a predominantly white space that they would go into that school and turn it around or restructure the school with some type of outside corporate um, entity. Like, it just don't happen. It doesn't happen. Um, which, again, to me is like, again, you have already said it. This is very targeted at a specific population. Um, and we allow it to happen and we allow it to keep going in, in some senses. Um, but I know you also speak on and talk about, and I'm curious about, especially in how we can learn from Chicago in that people were organizing. Oh, yes. Um, people were organizing. Um, though people didn't have the same strategies on what is what they wanted to do with black uh, public education, people were organizing, people were fighting. But why don't those movements tend to last and tend to have lasting impacts yeah. in a way that that um when our other counterparts either they organize or they don't, but they just living, yeah, um, and being left alone. Like what what are the differences in that? For sure. Well, so one thing is, I think sometimes with social movements, we have to change our idea of what's, what success looks like, right? Okay. So were all of the demands that were put forward met? No. Were some people's consciousness changed? Yes. Did some people move and continue to be engaged in a different way beyond that moment? Yes. Right. And so I'll just give a couple of examples of sort of some successes, um, despite the fact that it's an uphill battle when we are in a society structured by white supremacy, constantly trying to fight back against that as an organizing principle of the nation, right? And so, um, you know, I am actually very inspired by the folks who I, you know, have had the pleasure of either speaking with directly through oral history interviews or reading their papers um, to learn about the work that they did to come before us. Because I don't want to suggest that there is no progress. You and I are not in chains today, Shana, right? Mm -hmm. Like there, change does happen over time, you know? It does. Um, but that doesn't mean that we have to be satisfied with where we are. So we're um, grateful, right? Because people yeah. also have this notion because I'm not a slave, I should be grateful. Correct. And there's a different type of attitude um, in that. I never should have been one in the first place. So I don't Correct. need to be grateful for not being in chains. Correct. Um, but I do understand and respect the struggle and the sacrifice that was put forward for yes. me to, again, have a better quality of life. Yes. So in terms of that struggle, you know, when I look at, um, particularly, I feel like in the late 60s, young people who were organizing actually did get some of the things that they demanded. So by way of example, mm -hmm. um, and in collaboration, I think this is important, Black high school students with Black teachers. So mm -hmm. in 1968 in Chicago, um, there were a massive set of walkouts and students walked out every Monday in October and tens of thousands of students were walking out and they were demanding essentially community control of schools. So more black teachers, black history in the curriculum, more um, being able to get rid of principals who they deemed racist, um, having actual culturally relevant education. Um, I think interesting other things that they demanded, uh, students had a set of demands that included things like um, more homework, which I think is a fascinating demand, right? Because it's an acknowledgement about the way that the education you're being provided is insufficient uh, by young people. Um, and then I call this one the evergreen demand, which is for better school in the cap better food in the cafeteria. Every, every student <laughs> everywhere always asks for better, better food in the cafeteria. But these students walked out every Monday in October um, and hundreds of Black teachers supported them in this effort. And at the same time, in fact, Black teachers were organizing both of their students um, in organizations like Operation Breadbasket here in Chicago, as well as on behalf of themselves as Black public sector employees who were not, who were, there were barriers to their certification during this period in time. Mm. And when I say barriers, I mean like literacy test type barriers. So there was a separate oral exam that was being systemically used to deny Black teacher certification. So now you have all Black teachers who are only able to work as full-time basis substitutes where they're being paid less, easier to hire and fire, easier to transfer, particularly transfer if they're trying to organize in the civil rights movement, like, oh, y'all need to be separated, right? And so all of these things come together in this late 60s moment and some of their gains are, and some of the things they demanded were met. So for example, you see a rise in the number of black staff 
Black teachers and Black administrators as a result of this organizing by Black students and Black teachers, um, as well as a number of um, desegregation mandates that were being put forth at the state and federal level at this time. So I don't want to ignore that as a success, in fact, mm -hmm. right? Like Chicago, by the mid-1980s, Black teachers outnumber white teachers in the system after being a, mi a minority in the system. And that doesn't happen without the struggle of Black teachers, Black students, Black yes. community members, parents, right? Yep. That being said, <laughs> we can still talk about why is that number 20% today, right? And know that these other, you know, that these other um, policies and practices have put in place that have pushed that back. At the same time, I want to lift up Chicago as a place that both interestingly, I think, is a site of birthing of much of this corporate reorganization of education and a dramatic pushback against it. So in the mid-1990s, in 1995, um, mayoral control is imposed here in the city of Chicago, and Mayor Richard M. Daley and his then-time previously budget director, now first uh, chief executive officer of Chicago Public Schools, Paul Vallis, come in and they reorganize Chicago public schools um, in a corporate model. Expand, you see the uh, early stages of the expansion of charter schools, privatization and consultants um, to do work that others used to do, uh, you know, high stakes testing, sort of a back to basics curriculum, putting schools on probation and reconstituting or turning them around with this massive firing of educators. All of those things come in place and they mm -hmm. grow in the, in the coming years. We see vast expansion of charter schools, um, particularly in communities that were already experiencing declining enrollment. And I think that's key. So these are Black communities that, because we are at the same time in the early 2000s period, demolishing public housing, right? So people's homes are literally being destroyed. And of course, there are less children because of that. But yep. now we're opening more schools in those very same communities and saying, go compete with each other for kids, Right. But can you can you also draw out the connection? Because I think this is important for people to understand. And while we're talking about the politics of education, um, like we are having an education centered conversation. But when you start to talk about the demolishing of homes, yes. how there are these other public kind of entities that happen that then affect Absolutely. or are related to education. Absolutely. Once again, I don't think people look at that as the whole ecosystem and how politics are absolutely related to education. So I just want to point out as you're talking, like, please make sure to, to draw out those connections. Absolutely. And I would say if I look at the state of affairs in Chicago to now, today related to public education, it is, we are at this point that is, a, that is a result of something called the Plan for Transformation and Renaissance 2010. The Plan for Transformation was a housing policy that was about the demolition of public housing in Chicago. So literally getting rid of people's homes, which then scattered Black folks both across the city into neighborhoods that did not have the infrastructure prepared to accept them, right? And out of the state completely or into the South suburbs or to Iowa, all these different places, right? Where folks ended up being scattered. And at the very same time that this is happening, there is a policy called Renaissance 2010, that proposes to build 100 new schools, again, in a place where we're pushing Black folks out of the city, 100 new schools, primarily in these same Black communities, largely charter schools, but also other forms of contract schools or specialty schools. And again, I want just to take a step back. This is not a defense of the status quo of what education was in 1995, right? Mm -hmm. Black students were not being adequately served in 1995. But it is saying that the response did not make it better. Right. And and I like that you say that. I like that you say that the response didn't make it better. And the reason why I say that, I think a lot of the arguments for the uh, corporatization of education have been was better than what they had. But again, that is the result that gets given to poor black people like you wasn't living. You was living in the box. You know, now I built you a wooden doghouse and you still outside. You should be grateful for that. Yeah. Um, so. I love that you point that out. No, we're not saying that education was better then, but that doesn't mean that the solution you gave was adequate either. Yes. yes. And again, and I don't want to undermine, I think also like when I talk, I, I think I mentioned I worked at a charter school, right? I, I have nothing against charter school educators, young people in those schools, their parents who made that decision to go there. 
But from a systemic perspective, I just want to note the harm that that expansion caused. So that's exactly what I was going to point out. I worked in a charter school for 14 years. So that, that was my career. Yes. And I say that in particular because I think sometimes there's this argument of like, well, Black parents are speaking with their feet. They're speaking with their feet and they're leaving these public schools and they're going to charter schools. And so that's what Black parents believe in. No, it's not that Black parents are out here like, I really believe in, in, pri in privatizing public education. They're saying what was happening before wasn't working. So let me try something else. Let me try something new. And I think people try to push this argument all into one thing. So I love that we are breaking it apart yes. and breaking down pieces because again, like same thing can be happening. Some things can be true and some can, things can be not. Meaning absolutely there's a need for parent voice and parent choice. And absolutely parents should be given the option to send their kids to what schools that 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 are needed but just like any kind just like the choices of the consequences of any choices you have to reflect and look at it and i think what doesn't happen because we're just people out here trying to survive if i'm a parent we said this at the top of the show we're not looking at it from a systematic perspective that's not how i'm looking at this i am looking at it as like i know i had one option of a school that was it i had one option of a school to send my kid to um and i know that was not the option that i wanted with the nonsense that was happening there. Then we come and this is new. That's the other thing we have to talk about when you're talking about the the uh, corporatizing of education. It's this new shiny thing. So they're coming with new walls, new floors, new top of the line facilities, new books, right? So all of this is also coming with this package of me leaving my local public school as well, who's already underfunded, got asbestos, right? <laughs> so I'm now coming into this school and all this is shiny. And it is a... A thought process of like, okay, my kid deserves this and my kid deserves to be here. But again, if you have this like really bright, shiny toy, but then you pull back the layers or open it up um, and the gears or the things inside of it are all rotted or don't work or the pieces don't fit, did I really get something nice? Yeah. On the outside, it was cool, right? It, was, it, was, it looks pretty, mm -hmm. but for long term, um, for what I need for service, is it really adequate? And it's not. Um, but I, I, I love that we're breaking back these layers because I don't want to get it conflated with, because it turns into this one kind of point argument, charter versus public charters are horrible. And I mean, in a sense, like they're taking away this from public education, but I always say like charter schools are public schools. Number one, in my opinion, it's a different type. It's a different structure. It's a different model, but they are public schools. Number one. And number two, if public schools were doing their jobs adequately in the way they were supposed to, there wouldn't be a need for it charter schools they wouldn't have a chance to even exist and I think the other thing that I want to point out is that sometimes when you begin to have these conversations some people take them like personal attacks um and you said it over and over again this does not mean that teachers don't work hard um this does not mean that people aren't making impacts and making gains and also striving to change the lives of children like people really get into this work to do that and again me being one of these I was in a charter network in a charter organization for four years. I'm um, dedicated my life to children, but two things can be true. I worked in that organization and knew that a part of what was happening systematically wasn't good for black people. I knew that uh, or black children, but I also knew that personally, I wanted to make an impact. I wanted to connect with families. I wanted to connect with communities. I wanted to fight for black liberation. And I did that in my own way, in my own path within this system. Yeah. But that's also like the story of like black people just existing in America who want black liberation, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, I really appreciate what you're saying. And I, I think it does. It, it comes back to me to this question of education as a private good or education as a public good. Right. And I think one of the things so I mentioned Chicago being a site for the creation of these sort of, um, you know, corporate reorganization of public schools, which if you follow someone like Paul Vallis, he went on to Philly. He went on to New Orleans and completely you know, charterized their system. He went international with this, right? So there are things I feel like that were birthed here that spread across the nation, even with the ascension of um, local folks like Arnie Duncan into the Obama administration to do all of education and put forward race to the top. That model that had a strong birthing here went national, right? But mm -hmm. the other thing that went national that came out of Chicago was the organizing against that, right? Mm -hmm. And really being clear about organizing for education as a public good. And you see this almost as soon as it gets kicked off by the early 2000s, Black parents, 
community organizations, longstanding community organizations that were part of the civil rights movement, um, organizations like the Kenwood Oakland Community Organization, pushing back against school closings in their neighborhoods. And LASE, an organization that, um, you know, organizes Mexican-American communities uh, in Little Village, pushing back against some of the things that they see in this tiering of the system. And these organizations coming together with parents at the impacted schools here in Chicago with the Chicago Teachers Union, um, which at the time in 2010 started to be led uh, by a woman named Karen Lewis, who interestingly was one of those young people who was protesting in 1968, right? These walkouts uh, for, for Black education and then became an educator herself and really created with this new um, leadership and rank and file educators, along with parents and community, a forceful pushback against um, this, this privatization of public education that was further exacerbating the inequities that existed. And so this idea of pushing for public education as a public good, I think has also been central to the pushback against the, that corporate model that you've seen here in Chicago and that you've seen motivate and energize people across the nation, whether that's in sort of the social movement unionism space or in community-based organizations that are networking together to push back against that. That also came out of here. And, you know, as someone who studies the history of the city, I often talk about this tension between a very history of like top-down politics and this very strong grassroots um, political movement and history of this space that I think forcefully push, pushes has pushed back against that. And so we are at an interesting moment. And I feel like if we think of the just pre-COVID moment, 2019, at least mm -hmm. here, it felt like things had turned. So the pendulum had swung super, you know, sort of like private education, corporate education, 1990s into the early 2000s. By the time we're getting to 2019, it's like, hold on, we need to do right by all kids. And yes. what does that look like? We got to do right by all kids, particularly those with the least. And there's this shift towards that that starts to happen, I think, by 2018, 2019. And then COVID happens. And COVID exposed two really, uh, I think, polar opposite things. Yes. On the one hand, more than any other time in recent history, you have seen how important public education is as a public good. Because when you look around, who's feeding people when you're in lockdown? Public schools who are opening up their cafeterias and giving out meals. You yes. realize how much communities depend on public schools for um, a warm place to be, for a safe place to be, for food, for multiple meals a day, for health care, for mental health supports, for social work, for all of these things that public education as a public good provides. And you don't want that to be for some people, but not for other people, other right? People, yes. You know why that's important as a public good. On the other hand, I feel like you have a more general failure of our public social safety net to provide for the things people needed in that moment. And then people start questioning, well, if the government can't do this right, we should privatize it again. So we're in this really interesting moment where those forces that are like, look, y'all, this is why we need a strong public social safety net are more important than ever at the same time that you have these, you know, a resurgence of movements for vouchers, a resurgence. And I will also say this link to saying, let's take public money and give it to private interests mm -hmm. also encourages and exacerbates things like the attack on true history, the attack on teaching gender, sexuality and race in education, because you say, oh, yeah, you can go. Yeah, take your private, take this public money and go take your kid to a school where they don't accept queer children. What? Where they're not going to get special education services they need. Hmm? Where we're not going to take black history at all in the public or the private system. And so I think we see this real like polarization and, and it's, it's, it's an interesting moment that we're living through right now, right? Yes, um, it is. From my perspective, it reinforces to me why we need to be fighting harder than ever for public education as a public good. Because the one education reform after all of these that we've tried and tried and tried, the one thing we have never done in this country, fully and adequately fund education for Black children. Never. We've never tried that. Ever. Right? And that's why, to me, like that—that's the direction we got to go. Absolutely, I'm trying to because we coming up on time because this conversation could get so much deeper. 
Because when you like, that's the direction we have to go. And we talking about education. We talk about politics here. You can't have this conversation without talking about power. So when you say things like, this is direction we have to go. Who's in control of that direction? That's right. Right? Who who actually holds the power to be able to make these decisions? And then you think about who needs it most. So the, I don't think the people who need it most are the people who hold the power. Correct. So then the question is, how then do we empower those people? Yeah. Um, At, look, to your point, that's a whole nother hour, but... I know, right? <laughs> but, uh, the quick thing I'll say is, power concedes nothing without demand. And, and people power is power too right? But the power of that dollars is real as well. And I think to the point before about like sort of where we are on the financial side of things, I actually do think there's an interesting way that a perhaps unlikely coalition could come together if we can get past this parents rights, don't teach history foolishness, right? Mm -hmm. Around if you look, the federal government during COVID gave school districts a lot of money to stay afloat. That money's going to be running out soon. But it's not only running out in large urban areas, it's going to run out in rural areas. It's going to run out anywhere where there are children with poverty, regardless of what their race is. And so to me, that provides perhaps opportunity for those folks in those often disparate situations to come together and say, no, the federal government needs to continue funding, right? Um, Mm -hmm. what, What is necessary to run a public education system? Understanding all the you know powers that are that are also moving against that, I still I believe in people power, you know, and and I do believe that um, folks have to respond to it at some way. And some some of the ways that we're seeing that right now is in an authoritarian way. That's scary. Mm-hmm. Right? That looks like fascism. But at the same time, what choice do we have? Coming back to our earlier conversation, it's not about being grateful that we're free, but I think it is about saying. Who am I to not try, right? If my ancestors did all this to get us here. Gotta carry on that legacy of resistance. Yeah. Like you, that's what we have to do to yeah. carry on the fight. That's what we're here for. Um, speaking of that, it is Women's History Month, okay? It is March. So I cannot let you leave here without telling us some of your favorite black pioneers, black woman pioneers in education. Lay it on us. Yeah. So, okay. You know, there are so many, um, you know, let me go back a little earlier period. I'll move to the present for sure. I think folks like Anna Julia Cooper, who, you know, Anna Julia Cooper in the late 19th, early, you know, into early 20th century, while folks are talking about like Du Bois and Booker T. Washington, she's like, no, I have a different vision of education. And guess what? I'm also a practitioner doing this in schools right now, right? Doing the work, writing about the work. Folks like Mary McLeod Bethune, an institution builder, who also worked in those government spaces to push for what black children and, and um, you know, and black teachers needed uh, women like Ella Baker, who were yes. working in a political education space. So there's education and there's schooling. And we work in all of those spaces, right? As black and black women in particular, right? So when we're talking about black education, organizing and black education history, that's black women's history. Yes. Even mm-hmm. if often we see, you know, men at some of the leadership spaces, in our political organizing, in education, that's Black women doing that work. Um, people like Lily Peoples, who's one of the women who I had an opportunity to interview um, for my book, and who also, uh, you know, was just a wonderful um, Black education organizer, as well as being an educator here in the city of Chicago. Um, I look at women like Karen Lewis, who I mentioned, who was the head of the Chicago Teachers Union, but also a student activist in her, her younger days and then became an educator herself out of a family of educators. I mean, I could go on. There's many, 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 um, you know, to look up to. And, you know, I also want to shout out on a personal level, some of my amazing Black teachers I had as a child. Yes, Um, let's thank some Black teachers right now. Yes. Black teachers. Um, First on my list, she started me off strong, Miss Jenkins, kindergarten in D.C. public schools. Uh, I don't even remember. We had like a kind of like open classrooms type situation. So it wasn't a, I was in purple group and, (laughs) and I just remember she loved on us and she also pushed us, you know, Um, I want to shout out Miss Barksdale, my fourth grade teacher um, in Montgomery County public schools in Maryland, who I feel like I tell a story sometimes. I feel like um, she made me see a leader in me that I didn't see in myself. 
Um, I remember she was an excellent teacher and I learned a lot under her, but I also remember the ways that she gave me responsibility in the classroom that made me feel good about myself and built my self-esteem. Um, I'm going to take it to the collegiate level real quick and talk yes. about, I mentioned her earlier, but I have to mention two educators, um, Barbara Savage, who was my mentor and, um, you know, brought me into this profession and Erica Armstrong Dunbar, who was a mentor to me in that um, the program that I mentioned, the pipeline program and continues to mentor me, both of those women to this day. Um, so I could go on, but uh, I'll, I'll stop there. <laughs> no, we appreciate it. Listen, we don't get loved up one enough as women, as black women, and especially as black teachers in the field. So we, we always take the time at the end of our shows to love up one um, black teachers for sure. I love um, it. But we are coming up on time. Elizabeth, I want to thank you for such a rich um, conversation today. Um, definitely about education and politics. I really enjoyed myself today. So we thank really you, appreciate so you coming by. This was a good time. I appreciate it you. Was. Thank you to the work that the center's doing. It's powerful and it's necessary. Thank you. We appreciate you. So before we go, do you have any parting words that you would like to tell our guests listening today? Oh, parting words. Oh, you know, we got to keep on keeping on out here, right? The struggle continues. The struggle continues. And and there's joy in that too. And mm -hmm. I think we can't forget about, you talked about community earlier. And I feel like that's where we find that joy, when we find community um, to walk and do this work together. I love it. Shout out to all my co-conspirators out there who joined us today listening. Remember, Building the Black Educator Pipeline is a show hosted by the Center for Black Educator Development with the help of our partners, Bright Beam. Subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. We love you guys, and we'll see you here next time. Peace, everybody. Peace.